Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. On today's show I am speaking to the author and game designer James Wallace. We talk about, well, loads of things actually a real smorgasbord of stuff not notably just tabletop games some of you will know i'm obsessed by tabletop games board games card games role-playing games and we do go into that we talk about his new book everybody wins which i think at the time of recording maybe that is a week before it comes out it's certainly going to be out in time for christmas which is a lovely full color book going through the history of board gaming's biggest prize the spiel des Jahres, which is awarded every year to a game that is kind of a, considered the best game of the year that is also accessible to a fam to family players to newcomers you don't have to have any special knowledge of games to be able to grasp them and games like carcassonne and ticket to ride and settlers of Catan. if you've not heard of them they're games that sort of changed the face of modern board gaming. I think they're definitely in the conversation for some of the most influential board games in terms of game design of the last hundred years. And yeah, he kind of goes through each year the winners, the ones that were genuinely historical masterpieces and the ones that probably shouldn't have won or maybe have not aged well. It's a really, really fun, accessible, interesting book that somehow manages to be engaging to someone like me, who's really into games and knows a lot about them, and is you kind of open it up as a complete newcomer, and there's loads of pictures and loads of tidbits, and it's a great guide if you would like to buy a game and you don't have any in your collection, haven't played a board game in years. It's a great place to start because it basically gives you a list of very good games and you get to see the development it's really really fascinating so we talk a bit about that book but also you know James has got a background making all sorts of games a lot of them based around storytelling so we talk about his uh game adventures of Baron Munchausen which is like a storytelling improvisational game we talk about a bit about how improv feeds into storytelling and the art of storytelling games and how you might use that in your own work uh if you write fiction we talk a bit about we talk a bit about his work doing books uh on commission so that's like using other people's licensed properties so he wrote uh a sonic the hedgehog novel uh around the, the, t- the time of sort of the launch of sonic 2 and which has sort of passed into the cat, the the various competing canons of Sonic lore, but it's also interesting to hear, you know, what it was like when you got to write a book on a very tight deadline with in someone else's universe. Uh, how he managed that, you know, how do you write very quickly with a bunch of restrictions? Hopefully, that's really interesting as well because it's another uh, string to the bow of writing and the lessons he learned from that. Uh, you know we talk a lot about things like status games Keith Johnston's book Impro which I talk about a lot in my uh, Couch to 80k 
writing boot camp this idea of how we make a story and uh, how characters can bounce off each other i think it's a really fun and exciting and wildly diverse conversation for a conversation that you would you might have reasonably expected considering you know we were going to talk about his new book is about the winners of the spiel des Jahres. that takes up a relatively small amount of time uh, of the chat because he's had such a varied career and i i think it was just really good fun to talk chat chat with him I hope you enjoy it too. If you enjoy the podcast, just to say, um, you can write to me and drop me a line, send me in your first page if you want to be considered for a future episode where I look at readers' first pages. Just go to my website, timclairpoet.co.uk and there's a little button that says contact me. Just click that and you can send me your work or just let me know what you think of an episode or how you're doing. It's always nice to hear from people. I read all the letters I get. We've also got a Discord community now. Uh, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. That's the Death of a Thousand Cuts Discord group. Discord's just an app that people can use to set up little chat rooms and it allows, it does allow video and sound chat as well. We haven't availed ourselves of that yet. At some point, I might quite like to do a little writing workshop over our Discord group or maybe just sort of set a time when I'm going to be writing where people can just check in either over chat or over sound at the beginning and we do an hour where we're just aware that each other are there just accountability buddies really so not guided or anything just a kind of hi good luck everyone and then we check in afterwards and say how did you do might be useful but it's been really nice and people share their work and give feedback there's a whole growing workshopping community there which I kind of have nothing to do with, except that if people post on there, I have said they can mark flag it up if they would like it to be uh, considered for a future episode for me to edit. And when I say considered, I'm not using any kind of hierarchical process. I just mean posting stuff on the forum doesn't mean that you have to have it used in an episode. But if you'd like it to, and you put it, then if I notice it and I'm going through it and I need something in a hurry, I'll grab it off there. So yeah, that's it. You, I'd love to see you there. And if you'd like to support the show, two ways you can do that. Buy my books, Christmas is coming up. Uh, my novel, The Honours, which is set in 1935. Not only is the original copy uh, version of it in uh, red and green, very festive, but it begins and ends at Christmas. So I think it's technically a festive novel. But buy one of my books. Uh, I would That would be super cool and that supports me. That's what I do. I'm a writer, so I need people to buy my books. And you'll get a book. So it's a, it's a reciprocal exchange. What isn't a reciprocal exchange in the conventional sense is if you like the show and you'd like to help support it, you can just drop me uh, a few beans via my coffee page. That's ko dash fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. That's just a, a an upturned digital hat while I stand here sprayed, argent and motionless like a street performer statue. I'd never be able to do that. I'd never be able to have body paint on. I think I have too many sensory issues to be able to enjoy that in any but to tolerate it, I don't think you have to enjoy it, do you, to be a street performer? 
you can be absolutely I've seen some absolute miserable gits on the Royal Mile but they were making bank the the magicians were the most unhappy people that they gosh I mean it was just the particular ones that I happened to be around but uh the feelings of inadequacy and misanthropy that they exuded and explicitly uh, voiced when the crowds weren't there were intense but they were making you know 160 to 300 quid from a 20 minute performance that they were doing over and over each time so 200 plus quid tax free for 20 minutes work not bad anyway I, that's not what I'm getting for doing this but if you'd like to chuck me something it just helps me pay for hosting costs and keeping the lights on and there's a link there that's it that's all my stuff that I'm going to talk about before this episode I hope you're super well I hope your writing's going well maybe you did NaNoWriMo at the time of release that will have just finished if you did I hope you're still okay uh, if not it's well done for looking after yourself and not putting yourself through uh, that incredible crucible of pain. But just generally, you know, in the next week, if you get the chance to jot down some ideas or do a bit of writing or do 10 minutes, just know that that's something you're allowed to do for yourself. Don't feel guilty if you don't get to do it. You don't have to. But it's funny, I've noticed how much my attitude to myself and my writing can change when I manage to just do something little. So uh, just remember that is always available to you if you're feeling downhearted or a little overwhelmed. You can set a timer for 10 minutes, get out a book or open your computer and just do a little something. And it won't change the world, but it's nice to just do a little free write, a little muck around, have a little tinker. Uh that's it right that's my that's my tim's thought for the day um i hope you enjoy this uh this episode and uh, remember there's a link to james's book if you like to pick it up just look in the show notes which just means the informational bit under the podcast i've realized some people when i say show notes makes me sound super professional but um no it's just the description of the podcast episode okay Look after yourself, and here's my chat with James Wallace. When did you first get the inkling that games were something special? Good question. I think it was, um, I was at boarding school and had a rough time there. And when I was about 14, I was introduced to Dungeons & Dragons, which was unlike anything I'd come across. This was the early 80s. And Dungeons and Dragons was unlike anything else that was out there. The computer games of the time were very rudimentary by comparison. And so I immersed myself in this game, Dungeons and Dragons, which is very much, it's a game of creating characters and narratives and worlds. And uh, having started off as a player, I became a dungeon master, which is the more creative role. That's the one where you're essentially the uh, the director of the improv. You're playing all the minor parts. You're playing the bad guys. You're play playing the monsters. But you're also setting the scene. You're describing the incidental detail. And when the players have questions about, you know, does this chapel have a bell tower? It's on you to go, yes, of course, or no, or just, you know, make it up or refer to your notes or whatever it is. 
And I just, I dived into that with both feet, absolutely loved it, completely screwed up two years worth of exams as a result of just being so deeply into the game. But partly that was because um, very quickly after encountering the game, I also encountered the fanzine culture that was around it, and which was vibrant. The UK had a very, very large coterie of people creating fanzines around Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games in particular, but also around certain board games like Diplomacy, which you could play by post. And again, this is the early 80s. The internet is a thing of dreams and science fiction at this point. Um, so there was a lot of this going on. I encountered my first couple of fanzines, thought I could do this. I had a typewriter for unknown reasons. My mother had given me a typewriter when I was 10. She insists I asked for it. I insist I didn't. But nonetheless, when when a parent gives you a typewriter, you start typing stuff. And I'd been typing short stories and whatever else. And I thought I could I could do a fanzine because fanzine in those days were just typed and usually badly photocopied or cheaply gestetnered, you know, other various ersatz forms of duplication. So I put together a fanzine and it was very bad. I mean, quite execrable, really, uh, <laughs> even by the standards of the, of the time. But I got some useful feedback from the people who went on to be friends. I improved rapidly. We did eight or nine issues of that one. And then when I went on to university, I did a different fanzine, which became, we were selling three or 400 copies an issue, which, you know, was not bad by the standards of, of the time. And on the back of that, I started to be approached to write for the games magazines at the time, notably White Dwarf, but there were a number of others that didn't last as long as White Dwarf has. And from there, it was, um, I went, when I left university, I took a few months off. I went around the world. I ended up in America at Gen Con, which is the big, or was at the time, the big tabletop games convention. And the chap I was staying with wrote for a company called Palladium. He introduced me to the boss of Palladium. He went, oh, you're English. We're doing a book set in England and the writers just dropped off. Do you want it? Hmm. I was like, well, yeah, yes. I was really not expecting my first book contract to drop into my lap, like almost literally drop into my lap like that. Um, and then he told me the premise for the book, which was it's the, a post-apocalypse line that, that they did, a spin-off of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles called After the Bomb. And the idea was most of the humans had died. The remaining humans were the baddies. You were all you, the player characters, were mutated animals who had mutated into humanoid form. And the the thrust of this this book set in England and he insisted it was England uh, was that King Arthur was back and that was it that was my brief and you know I wrote it it came out I did a sequel um, started to make a reputation in in the industry and and that was that really can you can you talk a little bit about I just want to take you because there's so much to talk about there and I want to just take you back to those first um games of Dungeons and Dragons where you take out you start being a a dm so for people you know who've never played a role-playing game you know like you said you gave a great example there it's a bit like you're leading the improv um i, I wonder um if if there are any things that you started to learn about character and story because when i first did dming i remember how immediately terrified I was after being quite excited the moment the game sort of started and I realised it was me to talk and I like almost like a flop sweat broke out and I was like, oh, 
uh, I've got some notes. Um, what am I supposed to say? And they're going to immediately ask or do something that I wasn't expecting. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you, you know, in those uh, that some early lessons you got from that and some maybe, you know, things that were are enjoyable about it? Because for some people, it's, you know, I only started playing a few years ago and to then it was just this mysterious world that I had really no idea how it worked. Yes. I mean, it was terrifying. I was using mostly pre-written scenarios, at least to start with, rather than creating my own. So this is like, it's the framework of an adventure. It's usually based around a map and it tells you what's in each room. If it's a monster, whether the monster is hostile or, you know, if it's going to talk to you, what it has to say, what useful information is there, whether there's any treasure that you can use, clues if the thing actually has a plot. Early dungeons were usually essentially just mazes where occasionally you'd find something and fight it and kill it and take its stuff. That's the archetypal D&D dungeon. And the genius of Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, who created it, is it's in the first word of the name, Dungeons and Dragons, because a dungeon is a really constrained environment. There are only a certain number of verbs that the players are going to want to use. They're going to want to search. They're going to want to fight. They're going to want to uh, investigate on occasion. They're going to want to talk to things. But the simple fact that you're in a dungeon restrains what you can do. You can't you know, go, well, I'll set fire to it. No, it's made of stone. I'll go off and talk to you, you know, I, I want to find somebody who'll sell me a magic item. No, you're in a dungeon. There's, you know, there's a corridor. It goes forwards and backwards and then it branches. We, do you go left or right? And that actually makes it really easy for a novice GM to, or DM to run the game. As you get more confident, you can take the game outside into open environments where players can do lots more and think of more wild things to do which will stretch the GM's creativity. And then you start exploring urban environments where you know there's more people, more things to interact with, more potential plots. The GM's work becomes harder again, but by that point, hopefully you're ready for it. I've known people who have tried to jump into their first GMing experience with a big complex environment like that. And it's just, it's really hard. There's a re the reason that Dungeons and Dragons is the market leader is because it's in a dungeon, not because of the dragons. Very, very there aren't that many dragons in Dungeons and Dragons. It's one of the game's big secrets. Also, like a dungeon is not a great environment for like a very, very like often dinosaur-sized flying reptile. <laughs> and the other, I mean, the other thing about dungeons is you think back to the classic works of fantasy. Whether you're going back to Mallory or you're looking at Tolkien or, or you know, uh, C.S. Lewis, apart from the Mines of Moria, there really aren't any. <laughs> it's not part of the archetypal vocabulary of of fantasy literature of, or what we, it has become due to Dungeons and Dragons. It's become part of this this vocabulary. But at the time, it really wasn't. But it works as an adventuring environment and as a way of essentially training a dungeon master in the improvisational storytelling skills that they're going to need to then explore and these days when i run a game usually i'll have half a, half a side of a4 paper with a few very rough notes on it and i just improv from there but that's because i've been doing this for oh god over 40 years now i i like to think i'm quite good at it now but um you know the combination of the you know that's some the simple structure that you get from your your notes and then the structure of the game that the rules give you as as well if you if you're able to take that on board as an initial gm you essentially have and the early games never describe themselves 
as improv storytelling. I mean, improv wasn't really a thing at the time. It comes up almost simultaneously with, uh, I'm blanking on his name, but the book is uh, Impro. Uh, Keith Johnstone. Yeah. Keith Johnpro, uh, which was one of the er texts of the British games design community in the 80s and, and 90s, taking ideas from that and seeing how we could use them. And in fact, my game, The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen, is essentially a love letter to Keith, to Keith Johnstone. It's very much taking his techniques from that book. And so, and it's not simple yes and impro. It's playing much more with status games and with actually making it harder for your, your fellow players to tell their stories, but hugely inspired by, by what he was doing. I've no idea if, if his community was in any way influenced by what was happening in, in role-playing games. I'd like to think so, but I've seen no, no evidence of it. I mean, I think now the sort of new wave of uh, sort of watching uh, live play streams on Twitch, actual play streams, um, those ones I do think have a fairly substantial body of players who are also into the improv scene as well and do acting so it has it has eventually crossed over since we're there let's i'd love to talk about the connections between impro and your game uh, the adventures of baron munchausen because i think it's so interesting and because i think as writers we're often doing very slow improv with a kind of time machine that allows us to go back but you know we we have to, we are making we are always making it up just slowly and in private. I wonder if you could talk a, a bit about what the game is first, and then some of those principles that you care about because I think like it gets us down to like some of the basic principles, which is like how do you do good dialogue? Well, you make it up, and so this kind of starts talking about how you make it up. Yes, the extraordinary adventures of Baron Munchausen is a, it's a storytelling game. Arguably, it's the first storytelling arose out of role-playing games and claims on the front to be a role-playing game. But then the first edition of Dungeons & Dragons claimed to be a miniatures war game on the cover because the term role-playing did not exist. Baron Munchausen was essentially the first storytelling game, which is to say you're playing a character within it, but that's not really the important part. The important part is the story. The rules are very light. It plays in a single session, usually in about in less than an hour. There's a conclusion. There's a winner. It's you're, you're done. It's actually quite closer to a traditional game than most role playing games. So the way it works is you are you take on the role of adventurers and gentle persons of the late 18th, early 19th century when Baron Munchausen was alive, the, the celebrated German soldier and raconteur. And the idea is you're, you're all in an inn together, possibly trapped by a snowdrift or something like that. And you spend the time by challenging each other to tell tales of your extraordinary adventures. So I would turn to you, Tim, and say, my dear Baron, Baron Tim, I've heard many of, uh, many of your exploits told by other lesser tongues. But the one I've always wanted to hear you tell yourself is of the incident where you accidentally impregnated the Pope. <laughs> you have no forewarning of what story I'm going to ask you to tell. And the book comes with about 300 possible story seeds in, in the back. You just have to start telling the story fortified with a glass of something in, in your hand so you can drink a toast. And, you know, there's all sorts of mannerisms that you can bring into this if you just in a very improv way. But you just have to start telling the story, which if you're not a natural storyteller or even if you are, is quite terrifying. But at the same time, hugely fun. And as you start, you you know, you embark sometimes knowing where you're going, sometimes just making stuff up. The heart of the game is making stuff up. 
just randomly. Other players can interrupt. There's a little bidding mechanism with with coins, so I can push a coin across the table and say, "Ah, you say you were uh, you were in Vienna in the spring, but it's well known that that Vienna closes for spring cleaning every year." And you can choose to accept this interjection and the coin and go, yes, it's well known. I had sneaked in using as a disguised as one of the cleaning staff, as a washerwoman on the cobbles. Or alternatively, you can say, no, you fool, you're thinking of Paris. Vienna is notoriously filthy with the dirt of several centuries, pushing a coin, one of your coins back to me along with mine. I can then accept your coin and go, yes, of course, of course, you're completely right. How stupid of me. Or I can double down on it and add some insults and another coin. And so it bids back and forth until finally one one of us gives way. But all of these, this sounds terrifying, but actually what I'm doing is I'm giving you a potential handhold that you can use on the cliff face of the story that you're you're clambering up. And you can choose whether to use that or, or reject it. And it also gives you a little breathing space for the the you know the imp in the back of our brains that does the creative stuff um, to come up with what's going to come next or what you're going to say next. So the stories typically last about five minutes. Everyone around the table tells one story. Everyone challenges once and tells us to or gives a story seed once and tells one story. And you then use the coins that you have accumulated or spent in front of you to bid on in a sort of semi-auction system to say which you think is the best story. So if you've got 15 coins, you go, I I think, you know, Baroness Charlotte's story, clearly the finest, and I bid 15 coins towards it. And whoever ends up with the most coins wins and has to buy a round of drinks. And that's <laughs> that's the game, basically. It's about half a page of rules. The thing is, you can't sell half a page of rules. So what I had to do was come up with a way of turning it into a book, which I did due to, thanks to, a most extraordinary coincidence, which I only discovered around the same time, which is that my ancestors, uh, well, forebears, John and Edward Wallace, not direct line ancestors, but in the family tree, were games publishers in London two centuries ago at uh, the end of the 18th, early 19th century, exactly the same time period. So, the story when the story as the book says it is that I found in amongst the family paper this manuscript written by Baron Munchausen who had met John and Edward Wallace and who had um, they'd commissioned him to write the game he had written the game they had realized it was unpublishable for the for the market at their time they were simply too advanced and therefore hid it in the family papers this is I'm not going to say that's a complete lie but um, I will say that there are a number of disappointed PhD students out there who have contacted me going, <laughs> I understand you have access to the papers of John and Edward Wallace. Yeah. And I've had to write back and go, it's a game about making stuff up. John and Edward Wallace are, are real and I do have a familial connection to them. That, that's completely true. Um, did they meet Baron Munchausen? I have no evidence either way on that. Can you, because I, I, you talked about Keith Johnston's book Impro and it strikes me that when in having this system of, you know, sliding coins back along, across the table, you are giving some kind of physical embodiment to what Johnston calls the idea of offers. You know, that one makes an offer or receives an offer, one can accept an offer or over accept an offer or spot offers and I wonder if you could just talk about how could would you mind just reflecting on that process of someone saying you know jumping in because 
I suppose the classic conception of improv is the is this idea of yes and 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 so some someone starts telling an, an improv story or creating a reality and the other people simply say yes that's true and I was there so on the face of it the idea of saying but You've said you've said this aspect of your story, but how can that be true? Because you know, Vienna is closed for cleaning for spring. It sounds like a block, right? That there's this idea that someone's challenging you, and that might be threatening. Can you explain? Because I know from experience that that works and often spices things up, and actually often oddly makes things easier. Could you talk a little bit about that and unpack that a little? Absolutely. I mean, what it does is it potentially changes the direction of the, of the story. A yes and is very much a, we're heading or we're all heading in the same direction. There may be minor course corrections along the way, but more or less everyone's going in the same direction. I've been working on just jotting notes for a thing I'm calling Remember the Time at the moment, which is a, a group storytelling game. I don't have it completely, but the rough idea is someone will say, remember the time we went to Paris and someone else, the next person around goes typically can, if they want, can just say yes and, and add a memory to it. Or there's a dice, and the dice is not yes ands, it's other things, most of them, slight tweaking it in a slightly darker, because yes and tends to be positive, and the dice tends to be a bit darker and a bit more, you know, things that went wrong, and you choose whether to roll it or not. And it's designed to be very simple and to create essentially a group consensus memory of a thing that never happened hmm. um, with a little narrative to it. Haven't tried it yet. Don't know if it'll actually work. Just trying to get the structure down. So, yeah. So, yes, and is, I think, overused in, in improv and good improv troops. You know, it's it's something you learn in the early days. Good improv troops do not take it as, as canon writ. As long as what you're doing is not blocking, as long as it's adding potentially to the story, or changing its direction in an interesting way, as long as it's producing new material rather than cutting off lines of, of possible exploration or stopping things. I mean, Johnstone doesn't actually talk about yes and. That, I think, came, came along later. He's much more about what can we do, what can we put in that will create interest in, in the story. And the thing I took out from him a lot because there's stuff buried within the Baron Munchausen game that's not spoken about because it's not relevant to the way it plays. But the status, um, because you're all you're all supposedly noble people, but with the way the game works, there is jockeying for status within that, with the coin, yeah. with the bidding. When you add another coin or push something, you are saying, I am higher status because I understand this is more. And that when you reject, when the storyteller rejects that, they're going, no, I am in control of this situation. So that's all, all going on there. I mean, John, his book is extraordinary. The first three sections are very, very solid storytelling stuff and general principles that I've used in my fiction as well. And then the fourth one, he just goes off into what, what he calls mask play and the idea of, you know, almost transformative experiences of putting on a mask and seeing yourself in a mask to trigger different mental states. And he talks about stuff that can be done with different mental states. And it's quite, I think it was written in the 70s, and it does slightly really read that way. But um, there's an amazing bit, which I've never actually made work, but I've almost made work, where he describes getting a student to describe, to kind of visualize an exercise of being in a library. And she describes taking down a book, and with his, with prompts from him, and she opens the book and he says, what is it? And she says, it's a book of poetry. And he says, what's the first word? You know, on the page you're on, what's the first word? And she just 
comes up with a word. The important thing to know about improv, there are no wrong answers. There are, the only wrong answers are ones that block the story. Everything else is valid. But essentially, she improvises this poem just completely off the top of her head, simply by him prompting, what's the next line? What's the next line? What's the next? And it's, um, it's extraordinary. And I mean, the brain is a phenomenal creative tool, often in ways that, you know, people who talk very rigidly about, you know, set channels of, you know, creation and, and how we No, it's, it's just an amazing freeform creative engine. If we can learn how to access that and what I think the worth I see in, in the Baron Munchausen game is that it teaches you you can just make up a story out of nothing from an outlandish prompt. The thing about the Baron's stories is they're always self-aggrandizing. He always comes out of them, you know, having succeeded, having saved the world, or at the very least, you know, the royal family of Russia. And he has a particular fondness for the Empress of Russia, at least in my version. And, you know, so it's it's five minutes of basically competitive boasting trying to create the, the wildest story. And there are big fish story competitions out there already, but this one is absolutely, the thing is it's not just a storytelling competition, it's a game because I was selling it into the games market. I was running a games publishing company at the time. So the little rules about the bidding stuff are in there to make it explicitly a game. At the same time, I think it does work very well. I've tried to adapt it for a radio format as well and trying to, the thing about using coins for bidding is because the coins are a finite resource, there's only so much of that you can do. To try and translate that into an, an audio format where the coins are not visible, so you need to have something else, it's proved surprisingly hard. And I've tried various things of saying, okay, you can only interrupt once per story, or you can only interrupt, if you've interrupted, you can't then interrupt for another 30 seconds. And all of these feel in some way false, whereas the coins feel real. They are idiomatically correct within the within the genre of the game. I love that what you were talking about in terms of... St I mean, I love so much of what you're saying, but when you're talking about status, I think it's something that I really enjoy about role-playing games and particularly, you know, your one, one of the really fun things about it is... Maybe this is about maybe this is something that British people particularly enjoy because we are so under the strictures of an inherited class system that is um omnipresent and yet quite clearly ridiculous and arbitrary what people are allowed and not allowed to say it's like the character of the of the French chef in kind of comedy farces is always hilarious often to British people because look there's a high status character but he's downstairs he's one of the staff and yet is clearly often higher status than some of the upstairs characters um and and so there's a kind of mismatch that's funny that's why Jeeves and Wooster works because Bertie Wooster is clearly you know by all the contemporary standards of his time the high status character he is utterly ruled by Jeeves. Jeeves is the high star. And, you know, and this is just such a recurring thread through, you know, so much of, of British fiction. Dad, dad, dad's army. He, he, Captain Mannering is a classic one. I think, I mean, just the figure of the butler is really interesting. I'm sure there's people have done interesting PhDs on the figure, you know, who holds all the status downstairs, but is the lowest status upstairs, although he's often almost part of the family, but not quite. And one only has to look at Downton Abbey and things things like that. 
there's an enduring fascination with that dichotomy. I think I see, and I also noticed it when I when I served on a did my jury service that in court there's often clearly you know it's not appropriate for the judge to say, look, the defendant is obviously lying. But when the person changes their plea after the charges have been read, having said, I'm not guilty all the time, you know, there's that very British use of irony and sarcasm where they say, well, as so often happens, it's clear that arriving in court has produced a clarifying effect on the defendant's memory. And we all understand that that's not what the judge means. But there's this social game of what's reflected in the transcript. And I, I feel that that's, you know, part of what you're talking about with these plays is that there's this jockeying for position where someone might challenge someone else's story. But also, as soon as that person can parry it, now there's a backing down and a kind of yes. And and, and, and I, I find that balancing, especially as someone who has you know had social anxiety in my life, it becomes a, a source of real fascination and interest to me. And one of the one of the things that is most scary about it that we that you've talked about is also I think one of the great liberations and joys of playing these kind of games is in a consequence free environment. You can pretend to be doing this very, very intense jockeying for position. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, one of the things that Munchausen does, which another of my games, um, a card game called Once Upon a Time, which I co-developed with a couple of friends God, 30 years ago, is it gives permission to interrupt, which, particularly for British people, is quite hard when we don't naturally inter interrupt each other. And I think if you are a bit withdrawn as a kid, whether that's because of anxiety or because of um, some kind of spectrum disorder or, or something like that, Having an exercise in which you can essentially practice interrupting and it's all right, in fact, it's expected, is enormously important. And once upon a time, it's, it's, it's another, this one, you're only you're all telling the same fairy tale, using fairy tale archetypes on cards in your hand. But again, fairy tales are a constrained genre. There's only so many tropes. If you're telling a fairy tale, certain terms or references are likely to come up. Princesses, uh, you know, talking mice, witches, whatever else. So you use the, the way it works. Everyone has a different ending card. You're all telling the same story, but you win by playing your ending card to finish the story. But you can only play it when you've played all the rest of the cards in your hand. So I might start going, okay, once upon a time there was a king and he lived in an enormous palace and I'm playing cards here. <clears throat> and the palace was deep in the middle of a thick forest. And this has just occurred to me as a thing that would be, you know, it adds color to the story, but you've got the forest card. You can bang it down you go forest and you interrupt mm. me. You take over the story at that point using the cards in your hand, bringing it round now to your story, to your ending. The other way is interrupting, of interrupting is that all the cards are members of one of five groups. There are characters, places, items, events, and aspects, which I think became things um, in, a, in the most recent edition. But anyway, so if I play, you know, and, and the, the, the princess pulled out her sword and you've got interrupt any item, you can bang that down and go, item, you played an item card and you take over a game. So it's very simple. Uh, it does not lead to the creation of great works of fiction, 
But at the same time, it's usually very satisfying to play because you do feel that you've been on this journey with the, the characters and characters have come in and other characters have, have gone out and people have met, people have fallen in love, people have fallen out of love, people have been turned into frogs. It's a fairy tale. And then there's an ending and you, the ending card is can only be played if it actually wraps up the story. So if the ending says, so the king agreed and they were married, your story has to contain a king and uh, some disagreement and uh, two people who want to get married. And if it doesn't, then your ending card is not valid and you have to draw another one and keep going. It's it's not one of the, the great sophisticated games. It's not, there are tactics. It's not an enormously tactical game, but as an act, the act of creating the story within the gameplay rather than reciting a story that's pre-written or just, you know, there are storytelling games out there that where you just essentially draw random elements and bang them down. And they are funny once or twice, and, and but not terribly satisfying. Once Upon a Time is a game I still enjoy playing. I mean, not just because I was involved in its creation. It's still a fun time. And the stories are never the same. They are always uniquely different because you're bringing you know, four or five people together with different influences and different hands of cards. Uh, and this thing of, of games that create stories rather than games that retell existing stories is something I'm absolutely passionate about. And I think that comes out of Dungeons & Dragons where I first encountered it. Before we get to your latest book, which I'm really excited to chat about, I just wanted to... <laughs> I wanted to like. I guess I'm kind of scrunching up a diverse and interesting period in your life, which we've touched on upon actually. You know, some really interesting parts with the Adventures of Baron Munchausen and Once Upon a Time. But at that time as well, you also. I, I think I'm right in saying you you were you were writing you were doing some journalism and you also wrote some fiction at the time as as, as well. Could you just talk a bit about what what was going on around? that time as well obviously you you know you've been doing the fanzine and that developed into um it, 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 into more work along that uh, that road but i wonder if you could just talk about um where you were taken next okay it's i mean my cv looks like a shotgun's hit it i've done an awful lot of an awful lot of things but basically yes so i was writing role-playing books at the same time this is the early 90s now i trained as a journalist and was doing freelance journalism Partly for the games press, but also partly for bits of the trade press, specifically the trade press about magazines about magazines. There was um, the UK Press Gazette, but there was also a magazine called Magazine Week, which was fascinating and also got me within that. Um, I was approached in the, this must be 1993, uh, approached to write some game books and some novels about Sonic the Hedgehog, which um, I did which, you know, I, I love games. I love video games as well. This is an excuse to buy a Sega Mega Drive as a business expense and then spend a month playing Sonic the Hedgehog and claiming it was research. Um, at least to myself, I believed it at the time. And then this is, this is early in, um, in Sonic law terms, right? Like the Sonic canon now, I think like the Knuckles the Echidna page is longer than the one on Wikipedia for Sh for Sh William Shakespeare. Like it's it's absolute the, the the level of different iterations of, of of Sonic they really have moved into the kind of classic pantheon in terms of. It's, uh, it's quite terrifying, partly because there are conflicting Sonic canons. There was the British canon and the American canon. Um, but yes, uh, these books were coming out just as Sonic the two, Sonic 
two came out, we were writing them and nothing was really set in stone. We got, I think, 10 pages of background badly photocopied from Sega UK. And I think it was part of an American Bible and some, some of the Japanese background as well. And our job was to kind of make it coherent. I still get emails and, and texts from people going, uh, there's one guy in particular who is absolutely fascinated with how the Sonic Universe how the quantum physics works within the Sonic universe and tweets at me going, when you said in an interview six years ago that such and such, it's, oh, for heaven's sake, they are, there are people who take this enormously seriously. Earnest questions about, because one of my books included a character called Eric the Echidna. And then a couple of years later, the Sega introduced Knuckles the Echidna. Do you think they ripped you off? No, it's because if you're, Sonic is a hedgehog. If you're looking for a creature that's a bit like a hedgehog, but isn't a hedgehog, to be an adversary your first stop is either a porcupine or an echidna it's and i couldn't work out a decent <laughs> pun on porcupine eric the echidna worked quite nicely so yeah it's, i mean the other thing about writing licensed books like this is there's not much money in it so you have to do it terrifyingly quickly the we did four sonic novels and when i say we there were three of us um myself another writer called carl Sargent, who's sadly dead now and Mark Gascoigne, who was editing them and remains my editor today. In fact, he's the publisher of uh, Everybody Wins, the book that we will be talking about in a, in a few minutes. Mark and I go back a long, long way. We, we've co-written other things. Um, he's edited me on, on several projects. Uh, he's published me on several projects as, as well. But anyway, I think this was for Virgin Publishing. As I recall, it was the standard thing of they contacted us and or they contacted Mark and Mark put the team together. Uh, saying, we're, think we're probably going to get this license. Do you want to do it? And we went, yes, okay, we're on standby. And finally, the word went down that the license had been signed, therefore, could we pitch the novels and deliver four novels in, I believe, four months. And these aren't enormously long novels, but I think they're about 35, 40,000 words each. So they're not short either. And this is literally from first pitch to finished draft. And yeah, so I wrote two and Carl wrote two and uh, Mark edited them for consistency and to put in more jokes. And that was that was that. So, again, there was a, a huge elements of just making stuff up because so little had been established in the Sonic canon in terms of, of the orthodox continuity and how everything fitted together. Some of it we were kind of making up. Some of it was based on stuff that we'd seen in the video games, but wasn't actually included within the Bible document that they'd, they'd sent through. And some of it was just completely off the top of our heads because... You're, I mean, Carl, who the, my co-writer, Carl was legendary. He could write a trilogy of fantasy novels in a month. And he's dead now, so I can say there was some drug abuse involved in that. He took after Michael Moorcock in, in that style of take a lot of drugs, write really fast. Moorcock is still alive, but I don't think that's libelous. I think Moorcock has admitted. Well, I'm more, I'm, I mean, Moor, and, and all, and Moorcock's been very open about like the his speed of writing, right? Like he was writing, he was writing a novel in three days, the Rune Staff series, I believe. That's what he claimed. You pay for the printing of the New World Science Fiction magazine. Yeah, amazing man. I mean, I grew up on Moorcock's fiction. It, you know, it was it was what one read if you if you were into that geeky stuff. So, so, so how do you you must had to do that i just i'm genuinely kind of slightly in awe because 
of because I struggle so much with um, sort of self criticism and over analyzing my work, and especially something that might have even a sort of loosely established elements of canon. Um, you know, you, one starts to receive it as if it's you know these are handed down kind of Dead Sea Scrolls kind of or tablets graven of stone. So how do you did you, is it? I this might be a silly question, but you know how did you approach writing something where you're writing sort of at that speed so you don't start doing something and then get several days in and realizing you've gone completely off track and you're going to have to backtrack how did you organize that so you could actually get it done i wrote up a a synopsis document which had that had gone into the publisher first of all for their sign off and i don't know if they'd have to send it to sega for sega's sign off um quite possibly i mean i've had to deal with other licensing stuff in uh, subsequently and you know working out, oh god i was on the harry potter project this is a game project a couple of years ago and the slightest possible change on that had to be signed off by not only warner brothers but also um you know the, the powers that be they, it wasn't that level of oversight so i was basically sticking to the structure but there was also a strong element of knowing that mark essentially had my back that the manuscript was going to go straight up to him and he was going to edit it. So I saw my role, essentially, to use a comic book analogy, is I was the penciler. I was doing the, the layouts and showing where everything went and doing, and he would then be blocking in the inks and doing that, and then that would go off to the colour. Well, except I can, I'm overstretching this metaphor. But as it turned out, he didn't actually do that much to it. Uh, but that sense that there was someone there who, if I'd screwed up, if my plot wasn't making sense... And the first one, Sonic in the Fourth Dimension, is a very involved time travel plot. I mean, surprisingly so. And and it's hang on, it's it's time travel, but you and then Sonic CD is a time travel. It seems like every every single all of the later Sonic games seem to be very very similarly. Wow, mine's almost more parallel universes, and there's also a heavy element of Sonic running into previous versions of Sonic, crossing the streams and stuff. So essentially he picks up a time travel device and it's a convoluted plot, but essentially he has to go back. There's an accident within Sonic continuity, or at least within the, the continuity of the time, where the, the kindly scientist Ovi Kintobor has an accident in his lab, which I creates Sonic, but also... Does it create Sonic? No, I think Sonic is created earlier. But there's an explosion, and he becomes Dr. Evo Robotnik. The, and I, this was not me. This was established continuity. So Sonic and Tails go back to stop this accident happening, you know, so that uh, Kintobo never becomes Robotnik. And then it turns out that was an enormous mistake. So they have to go back in time to stop themselves um, stopping the accident. And then there's things just get worse and worse. And eventually they have to, someone's trying to pollute the big bang with chaos. So they've got to time travel back to the big bang to stop it. And it just, I just wanted to, one of my principles of, of writing when I'm doing fiction is more awesome. Come up with the idea and then just look at it and go, how can I make this more awesome? How can I make it bigger, sillier in some respects, certainly funnier? Because um, humour is a thing that is a stream that runs through most of what I do. I did a, I was a dot com content creator. I ran a the games channel on a website, long defunct, but I won't name it. But I was writing text for that and was called in because I was told that my humour was too hard, as in too sharp. 
And yes, that, and I should leave the humour to somebody who then went on to become a, he's a diarist on one of the national papers these days. <laughs> so, you know, perhaps that was the right choice. But anyway, um, so yeah, I was just trying to make this this big, silly, enjoyable story about characters that the, play, that the reader identified with. And there wasn't that much Sonic stuff at the time. I mean, there were a couple of t-shirts. Sonic the comic was just about starting up. But, you know, Sonic was was a niche figure at that point. Video games were still fairly niche. And it was it was huge fun to do. And as I say, I did I did two. And bizarrely, I mean, we was you were saying Sonic fans are quite obsessive about or some Sonic fans. Let's not tell them all with the same brush. But there's a podcast out there who's done a they in the last year have done read throughs of both these 30 yes. year old novels chapter by chapter talking about them analyzing them for their for their patrons and it's i mean that i didn't i didn't toss these things off i did not think of them as trash as i was doing them i'm proud of the work i'm proud of the plotting i think there's still some really good jokes in there but i was aware at the same time that they were probably ephemera they were not going to have much of a, a durability they had a single print run um, most of which was sold to a book club and therefore we got no royalties because royalties on book club editions are minuscule. I don't think the books ever paid off their advance and 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 that was that. And I thought, okay, on to the next project. The fact that people are reading them to an audience 30 <laughs> years later, it beggars belief and it is intensely flattering as well. Yeah, I think I think I think Sonic law and games, I don't know why it was Sonic in particular that has engendered such a sort of like gnarly engagement. I, you, do you know what? I, I, I think I can say this because you'll, you know, be different if you'd just written these books and, and so therefore you had to be a bit careful about Sega. But I think one of the reasons that Sonic Ephemera and Sonic uh, Extended Universe works have, have had such a life is because actually... Post Sonic 3 and Sonic and Knuckles, the actual Sonic games have not been very good. And so people have been forced to kind of go into, of create their own stuff, to look into the extended universe stuff, to kind of go and live in the fictions around the games. Because like Mario, like the games have just been really solid. It handled the transition into 3D really well, which Sonic didn't. And then it has just been really good. So no one except me, and you know, this is where I again would like wave my lanyard as people as an excuse, cares about Mario law. I'm like they're doing exactly what people are doing to you and going, who is who is the character of Booster in Super Mario uh, RPG? Because he looks a bit like Wario, but we never see him again. Is he a relative of Wario? We're never told. Like, that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night and I feel very lonely about because no, nobody else cares about. But... I'm, um, I'm more interested in the, the, the early lore of Mario when he was still known as, you know, in Donkey Kong, when he was still known as Jumpman... Uh, having to climb this structure to save a character who was only ever known as Lady. Tim Clare from the future here. Not your future, obviously. That would be alarming. I would only have some kind of dire warning if I were doing that. I, I don't normally interject into interviews like this. Um, But what James did here was make the grave error of engaging a 
41-year-old autistic man on his lifelong special interest of Super Mario Deep Lore. And I, I kind of went off on one about the character of Pauline, which is the name of the lady that Mario's trying to save in the original Donkey Kong. And, and, and then the entire history of her in the series uh, up to her becoming a singer and mayor of New Donk City in, in Super Mario Odyssey. And I, I, I just, just not wasn't relevant to the conversation to include all of that here. Uh, and, and and I actually got a few things factually wrong as well, which I, I think it's that rather than courtesy to James and staying on topic with his book, which is why I'm interjecting here, because I actually couldn't bear that because it turns out being obsessed by it doesn't mean that I've got a very good grasp of the facts. Um, but that's why I'm stepping in here to say uh, Lady's name was uh, Pauline and uh, she's a cool character with an interesting arc, I think. But that's not what this interview was about. So I cut it out and we'll continue as you were. What I wanted to talk about then is talking about games and narratives and to a certain extent obsession and I would love to talk about your new book Everybody Wins which is about tabletop games and a specific prize uh, the Spiel des Jahres. Could you give us the sort of precy of what it was about and why you wanted to write it? Sure it's um, I mean I'm sure your listeners who I'm getting I'm guessing are people who frequent actual bookshops because I I am I feel I'm among friends here. More and more books you you will have noticed more and more bookshops now stock board games. There has been a renaissance in board game design over the last thirty or forty or fifty years, depending on exactly how you you count it. The games have got better. They've got more involved. In some cases, have become more complex. In others, have become simpler. But the design simply has become better. They are more engaging. They are more fun, and they seem to they engage some of the same pleasure principles as as reading and appeal to the same kind of audience. So what I set out to do was to chronicle this rise, the renaissance in, in modern game design, using as a lens the Spiel des Jahres, the German Game of the Year Award, which started in 1979 and progresses through four or five distinct acts or eras up to the present day. And along the way, it's crowned basically the, the gems of, of the Renaissance, the, the, the treasures, the major titles like Catan and Carcassonne and Ticket to Ride and Codenames. It's made some notable errors along the way. It's awarded it to games that almost certainly didn't deserve it. Particularly, there's, there's one noted year where everybody knew what was going to win a game called Puerto Rico, which then didn't win. And it went to a game called Villa Paletti, which is now largely remembered only because it's the fact it's the game that beat Puerto Rico. Uh, it is not. It is very far from a great game, let alone game of the year. So what the book does is it, rather than being a chronology of the award, it uses the award as a lens to look at the games, the most notable games and some of the other games of each year, and then looks at those groups of years and to say, OK, well, this is how the industry was developing. This is how the games culture was developing. But at the heart of it, it's reviews of the 44 games that have won the, the Spiel des Jahres, looking at them from a modern perspective, going, well, why did they win? 
are they worth playing now? And in some cases, are they worth tracking down and playing collector prices for? Because some of them are, are out of print and obscure. Some of them are on sale in Waterstones. But um, you can usually recognize such a field as Yahoo's winner because they'll have a red, what's, what the Germans call a purple, a, a game pawn, like a chess pawn on the cover. That's the symbol of the award. The red is the symbol for the, the spiel itself, but there is also the Kinderspiel, which has a blue pawn, and the Kinderspiel, the expert prize or the connoisseur prize, which has a black pawn. Uh, and those are for games which are usually a bit more complex and may run a bit longer. I, I, I have to say, reading through um, the the entries, I had a couple of moments that sort of stopped me short because of the rush of memories because I grew up um, in a house where my grandmother was German. My dad, you know, her, was a languages teacher taught German because his, his mother, you know, had been a, uh, an immigrant to this country. Um, so there were board games in our family and he would bring them over to play. And I, I, th I think the first in the list that I was like, Oh, and almost felt like having a, very visceral emotional reaction to was um Heimlich and Co. Ah, uh, uh, I love Heimlich and Co. Which is for people who haven't, yeah. Do you want to describe it a bit for the the listeners? Because I, you know, I otherwise I'm just going to jump in and start raving about it. So maybe so people. Could, but um, that was I I I was I was like oh oh I I felt it coming back to me. We do have these emotional connections to you know the games we played in in our childhood and games I think are. I, when I'm describing them, and I, I teach game design, um, I, I still lecture in it. I used to lecture it in, about in-game narrative at university level for 10 years. But I describe them as being a little bit of magic. And that's not kind of airy-fairy little bits of pixie dust. There's a phenomenon known as the magic circle, described originally in the 1930s by Johann Husinger. The idea that games are almost a sacred space. When we start playing a game... We envelop ourselves in this consensus bubble, a consensus reality, and what happens within that bubble is okay because we're only playing a game. It doesn't matter in the real world. So you can do things within the magic circle that you can't do in the broader world. You can trash talk people quite brutally. You can steal their stuff. You can attempt to crush them. You can bankrupt them. You can, you know, kill their their, their henchmen, whatever else it is, and it's fine. It's a game. It doesn't matter. So, yes, so we have these reactions to these almost magical moments in, in our childhood. And because games are, tabletop games are inherently social, you're doing it with other people, even in competitive games. And one of the trends of the, of the last few years is cooperative games, where all the players work together to beat the game, rather than beating each other. Heimlich & Co. is not one of those. Heimlich & Co. is the first Spielersjahres winner by the great Wolfgang Kramer, who's won the award more times than anyone else. And it introduces a number of, of concepts that went on to just become staples of the, of the genre, like a scoring trap around the outside of the board, which these days we just think of as, well, of course. But no, this is where the first game was um, Heimlich & Co. Essentially, you're all controlling secret agents. You are, there's, there's a board with uh, essentially a circle of buildings on it, numbered one to, I believe it's 12, or it could be 10. It's 10. It's 10, and then there's a uh, a ruin, which is worth negative points, and a church, which is worthless. I put that line in the book, and they made me take it out. <laughs> we may be translated into some countries that object to being told that the church is worthless. Um, 
And then there are pieces representing different agents on the board. On your turn, you roll a die, you move, you can split the roll between different agents, but you move a number of them along these numbered houses. When one agent lands on whichever house has a wooden safe in it, and there's only one wooden safe, every agent scores the number of points for the house that they're currently on. And you carry on. The thing is, no one knows which agent is yours. You have a face down, you're dealt at the start of the game, a face down card, which identifies your agent. And because you're not, you can move any agent on your turn. You don't have to move yours at all. But what you're trying to do is move enemy agents into the, the low scoring or negative scoring positions at the moment that someone else is going to hit the hit the safe. And then once someone hits the safe, it's moved to another, a new position. It's very simple. It's very fast to learn. It is surprisingly strategic. It depends entirely on the other players and how good they are at concealing which which agent they're, they're moving. I absolutely love it. I think it's a delightful game. Surprising levels of depth, uh, not for its time, but the way it's it's sold as a light family game, and you can certainly play it that way. And the strategy, you know, what you do on your turn is very simple. You you roll a dice, you move one or more pieces, you may then score at that point. These, these beautiful sort of agents that look like they're these, almost like these silhouettes of secret agents with their little hats and, oh, I remember those, these wooden pieces. Wow. Yeah, and one of the things that German games have done since the 70s is these gorgeous components. These are big, chunky pieces of, of, of wood. They're pleasing to hold. They're pleasing to move around. They, the board looks great. The whole thing just looks, it, it's lovely. Yes, so Heineken Co. Is, is, is a personal favourite and rather out of favour at the moment. I think it's out of print, though you can pick up uh, secondhand copies really very cheaply, particularly on German eBay, which is the great secret of game collectors. <laughs> German eBay. I was um, I was over at the, as, as, as you were, at um, the International Spieltage in Essen a couple of months, uh, last month. And was finding on the secondhand stalls games that I've been looking enviously at, enviously at on eBay in the UK, where they are 50 or 60 or 70 pounds. And I was picking them up for 12, 15 euros, 12 or 12 euros in beautiful condition. Whoever, whoever owned these previously has clearly cherished them. So, yes, German, German eBay and yeah, Heineken Co. Absolutely beautiful game. When you're looking through the sort of history of the Spiel des Jahres, because there's so many games here that I'm so fascinated by, the way you've structured this book is is such that you can you you get to dive in and really just talk about both the game and I guess the time as well. What's really nice is it gives you it, the, the game almost becomes a sort of way of slicing through history. Uh, as well you've talked about games having undergone a renaissance in the last you know like you say could be 30 40 50 years but over the life of the spiel des jahres how do you feel and and obviously you go into this in great detail in the book but um as a kind of overview do you feel has there been a sort of arc to to games um over the life of the prize I think so. I mean, so much has changed that have has affected the games industry. The the advent of the internet, meaning that games designers all over the world can talk to each other and compare notes in a way that really they didn't previously. Wolfgang Kramer, who I mentioned, uh, collaborated in the 90s with a number of other designers, mostly by fax. 
and Michael Kiesling, in fact, who he created two Spiel des Jahres as winners with, and Kiesling then went on to win the, uh, the Spiel himself in, I'm going to get the year wrong, 2018, I think, for Azul, which is a glorious game of laying tiles in medieval uh, Portugal. And, and beautiful components again as well. Just, yes. Try, try not to eat it. <laughs> yes, these things that do look a little bit like opal fruits or, or, yeah. or spangles, but just lovely to hold and to push together. And they make such a satisfying sound when you do and drawing them out. Of, yeah, yes. I'm, I'm very big on the tactility of games. I think it's a, enormously important. It's one of the things where tabletop games just win hands down over digital games. You can do beautiful things with digital games, but the, tact, the extra senses, the sensuality of a well-designed, well-built tabletop game um, is fantastic. So, yeah, so, so many things have happened. The vocabulary of, of games, just before we talked, actually, I've been doing a dive into trying to find the origins of the term game mechanics, which is a catch-all term we use to describe the way games work, like the essentially the cogs and the springs and the ratchets and the whatever else that go into making up the mechanisms of, of a game. And the earliest I can find are some references in the 1980s from an American magazine called Computer Games Monthly, I think. They seem to have been the only people to talk about it in print. And then it doesn't reoccur until about 2005. Wow. This is, it's a very recent vocabulary. This whole idea that games have mechanisms that can be isolated and analyzed and, and duplicated. We had the idea, but I don't think we had the vocabulary to describe it previously. So once you have the words to talk about things, you can advance things really very, very fast. And certainly in the last few years, the changes that have gone through in games, the styles of games that have come through, and also with the internet, the way that a, a successful new game mechanic, and I'm thinking in particular of deck building, which is the idea of a game that allows you to assemble your hand, to choose which cards go into your hand as you are playing the game. Sounds like a simple concept, really isn't. The first game to do that was one called Dominion in the late 2000s. Again, I forget the actual year. And there was a gold rush. There was an absolute flood of followers and, and hangers-on, some of which are, are equally as good as Dominion. Dominion is also a masterpiece. It's a fantastic game. But there are bigger games, there are smaller games. There are There's one called Deck Building, in which is a deck building game about constructing an outdoor patio yeah. area, um, which is a pun almost strong enough to hang an entire game on. Um, <laughs> but I think within, within 10 years, Board Game Geek, which is the canonical website that lists pretty much every board game ever published, they list over 120,000 these days. Within 10 years, there were 4,000 deck building games listed on, on Board Game Geek. Um, and before the internet, that flood could simply wouldn't have happened because things moved much, much more slowly. You know, it, we, the channels of communication were much more constrained to you know fanzines that came out once every two months rather than the likes of, of twitter and bulletin boards and, and blogs and things that can be updated twice a day i wonder what do you think are what are the kind of stories that games can tell and i'm talking about tabletop games now rather than you know when we when we play a game like i don't know ticket to ride or or Catan, or I, 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 or Dominion. You know, I'm talking about games that we, uh, or even something like chess, or or Hive. I, I'm I'm trying to give you a more specific thing than what's 
what's going on there? What's the deal with that? But but what is the deal with that is what I mean, you've talked a little bit about this idea of the uh, the magic circle, that there's something that can happen there that maybe doesn't happen outside it. But OK, we've established the circle, but what's going on within it? It's a, I think meta story is really regardless of the game, regardless of the genre and some of these games have intensely in-depth genres and, and settings, I think really it's the it's you know it's the rise and fall it's the push and shove it's the i'm doing really well oh no i'm not it's you know oh tactics you know there's a branch here i know i'm blocked off there that sense of it's not the story it's the meta story and all games do that chess does that drafts does does that everything every game where there is a tactics and choice will do that the very simplest game snakes and ladders there are no tactics because there is no choice in snakes and ladders you roll the dice you do what the dice says you pass the dice to the next player. That's snakes and ladders. There's, but even that has a vague kind of meta story to it. I'm doing well. I'm in the lead. I'm not in the lead anymore. You know. Oh, I'm coming up from behind. Oh, I was just pipped. It's it's a simple story, but because games are interactive, because we're not observing this from the outside, because we're within the experience, we feel it on a different level. It's happening to us. It's not happening to characters that we are observing. And I think that makes it very different. And we don't perceive it necessarily as a story, but we understand it as a sequence of, of events that trigger particular emotional reactions within us. As games have developed, they've developed more internal narratives. And there are games that tell stories. Um, some retell pre-existing stories. Um, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, which is kind of, it's, it's what the Choose Your Own Adventure books want to be when they grow up. It is a, an absolute masterpiece of deduction and, and investigation. It basically, it gives you London in, in a particular time, copies of the Times, fake copies of the Times, not real ones, and a, a setup. And then it goes, okay, where do you go and investigate? And you go, oh, okay, well, scene of the crime. Well, go to the scene of the crime. Okay, and you look up and you go there and there's a paragraph of text describing what you find there, characters and someone's mentioned and two or three things. And there's blind alleys. Sherlock, it, it's, a, it's a masterpiece. And it's very narrative. And there's big, big chunks of text that you're supposed to read out, which is not what everyone thinks of as a board game. But it's you're exploring a story on your own terms, but the story is pre-written and there's one predetermined murderer and you have to identify that person. You have to identify it better than Sherlock Holmes does. Um, Holmes, it's it's known by many as Sherlock Holmes insulting detective because you take your results back to him and he he's just very rude to you, uh, <laughs> generally. Uh, uh, how did you not, how did you miss this particular lead? Um, but it's it's absolutely great. So there's a lot of games that kind of re-tell pre-written pre stories or gives you give you a chance to experience stories within an existing setting um tales of the arabian nights and this is a game from the 80s again um comes with 2600 story lits in the book and you are one of the great heroes of middle middle eastern folklore the thousand and one one nights uh exploring the world having adventures but you'll land on a particular location, you'll draw a card. Oh, I've encountered a rock. And apparently the rock is on table E and you look at table E and it goes, okay, what can you do with a rock? You can fight it. You can try and hide from it. You can, um, I can't think what else you can do with a rock. Yeah, you get some verbs, don't you? It's you get a whole bunch of verbs. And it's if it's a, a, a human or an intelligent species that you're contesting with, you can, you know, you can barter with them. You can try and enslave them. You can, you know, hire them, you know, argue all of these all of these different things and then there's 
it's a, even in the 80s, it was a complicated system. These days, it's just crying out for an app. But it's, it is, it's beautifully fun. And this will then direct you to one of the paragraphs in the book that will tell you the result of, of what has happened and whether you get some experience points or some, uh, some gold or whatever from it. It's just, just beautifully fun and silly. And then there are the legacy games, which came about, I think, about 10 years ago. Uh, the first one, Risk Legacy, was, was the first. The idea of a legacy game is it came out of a pitch session at Hasbro with Rob Daviau, who, who designed the first one, um, talking about Cluedo and basically saying, look, why are these people re-invited back to dinner each time? Every time they come back, someone else dies. And, um, you know, and there was laughter and nothing further went of it. But he went, well, what about Risk? OK, if you play a game of Risk and then you start the next game with the results of that previous game having affected the setup, that would be interesting. And he takes it and absolutely runs with it. And Risk Legacy is, is great if you like Risk. But he then worked with Matt Leacock to create Pandemic Legacy. And this is a narrative game. Pandemic is was one of the big hits of the last few years, as you can imagine. And it's a cooperative game where you are working together to save the world as essentially the World Health Organization or something similar, the Center for Disease Control, I think. But you are working together to wipe out, to uh, basically isolate develop cures for and wipe out for plagues that have broken out simultaneously. Very clever, very tight game system. It's, it's usually, it's very tense to play. It feels almost cinematic, the way the peaks and the beats of the game work. And Matt has used storytelling structures in some of his, this game and, and others. But the legacy thing then stretches that over 12 separate episodes. So you're, you're playing essentially the same game, but how you did in the previous session affects how this one goes, uh, how the next one goes. And then there are things that happen and it's divided very much like a screenplay into a series of acts and stuff. How, I'm not gonna give any spoilers because there are moments where it will instruct you. The thing about a legacy box is you don't get all the bits to start with. There are sealed envelopes. There are sealed boxes. And the, uh, what you know, after session four or something, the game will say, now open box D. And you do. And you go, oh, oh, this just got really bad. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's far more, I mean, uh, playing a good board game is a fantastic experience. Playing a legacy game all the way through you really feel like you've been on a journey with a group of friends to create something. And yes, you're playing through a story that someone else has structured. You're not necessarily playing it the same way as, as anyone else would have done, but you're playing through their structure to get to a, an end point. And usually because, you know, you're, you're hoping at least that you will succeed. You may succeed better or worse than other people, but you will end up feeling that you've genuinely done something fairly monumental. And the idea of a legacy game is once you've got through those 12 parts, or most of them anyway, the game's done. You know, you've changed the board, you've put stickers on the board, to, you've altered national borders. In our case, I think in session one, we accidentally wiped out Bangkok. Bangkok <laughs> went, and with it, large chunks of, of, of South Asia. And it was like, oh, God. So the sticker goes on Bangkok. And there are they sell reset kits so that you can reset certain of these games. But this as, as a way of taking the form of, of board games and saying you can do more with it. You can, it can become an episodic thing. And Dungeons and Dragons, interesting, was always open-ended. It was always something you played over multiple sessions. It's kind of coming, rediscovering that and bringing it 
to the traditional tabletop form. But that's that's just one example. There's so much going on, not just in terms of game narrative, but in terms of game mechanics, of making games more accessible, more immersive, more tactical as well. So these are games that, you know, a few years ago would have had enormous rule books, now have much shorter rule books. Rule books are still a sticking point, learning how to play a game. Rule books are almost certainly the worst way to learn how to play a game. Unfortunately, they're also the easiest because they're the most convenient because you can't put a games designer in in the box. What you can do these days, and, game, and games publishers increasingly are, is you can put a QR code on the rule book that will lead to a video. There's a brilliant app called Dized with a Z. I've, I've visited them in, in Helsinki, actually, uh, their studios, yeah. They, yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. are very smart people. They're basically online tutorials for how to play games, uh, but with a bank of rules in there as well if you've got specific questions. Really smart stuff. But again, you can't put a mobile phone in the box itself, not unless you're appealing to a rather richer audience than most board game <laughs> players. So rule books are, are still there. But the easiest way is still to learn from someone who knows how to play. And games are inherently viral. Uh, good games are inherently viral anyway. A good game is its own advertising campaign because you want to play it again. You want to share it with friends and you want to have your own copy of it. And that, I think, is what games have got better and better at, which is why they are increasingly visible on the, on the high street and on online stores and why more and more people are playing them and collecting them. I know that you have taught sort of game design workshops for people, getting people to do these sort of breakneck speed, creating and iterating ideas for games. And I just thought kind of as a way of sort of wrapping up and bringing together some of the different threads we've talked about. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the the kind of <laughs> I I realise it's a sort of you know it's obviously a truncated version of a game design process. One does not normally create an entire game. Just talk about the idea what we can what you've learned from that and what people can learn from that about going from kind of a brainstorming to concept to feedback about what we can learn about like getting ideas and whether people listening want to be want to design a game or they really want to write a book or make a, a world for a video game or anything like that. What does the process look like for, for when you've done those? What have you learned from them in terms of coming up with ideas and testing them? Yeah, it's, I, I think that's interesting. I mean, game design is an inherently iterative process because you cannot rely on your first version being any good at all. And it's a process we call finding the fun. So the idea of what I call the game design masterclass, this, this three-hour session I run, is that I explained a bit about games and how they work and how to make them. Then people get together in teams. You have um, 20 minutes to concept a game, 30 minutes to build it and, and test it, which sounds like no time at all. And that's part of the point. And then all the teams swap their games around and you all play each other's games. And you have 15 minutes for that. Then you give each other feedback. Then you get another session, usually 20 minutes, to redo your game. And then there's another play test and another round of feedback and the game will have improved. Just with 20 minutes additional work on it, informed by having players or in the case of fiction, readers commenting on stuff. It really makes a difference. And then if you were a professional game designer, you would continue that iterative process over and over again. Um, Once Upon a Time was in play test for two and a half years before it finally went went to print. 
two years before we even pitched it to a single publisher. And yes, it's, I mean, when I write fiction or, or even nonfiction, I do tend to be a first draft guy, but I think you can these days because you can edit as you go, because the word processing um, makes it that you can continually improve your drafts as you're working on them. And this is not an ideal way of doing it, but it's the way I have developed of, of I have focus issues, I have, you know, and attitudes to my own work as well. I don't have a terribly high regard for my own work. I think most of what I've done is trash. The fact that it's sold in hundreds of thousands of copies does not do anything to, you know. <laughs> it just means that you 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 loathe yourself and humanity. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I, you know, I'm glad people are finding stuff to enjoy in my work, but it doesn't mean necessarily that I respect what I've done. And, you know, there's, there's a few things out there. I still think bits of Baron Munchausen are, are very funny. Some of the jokes in Sonic the Hedgehog have held up as well, you said. Sure, yeah. There's a, there's a couple of crackers in, in there. But mostly, it's, I always think I could have done better. But at the same time, I really hate having to redo work. And I think like most of us working these days, it's, it's interesting. You read through history and there's you know, the cases of, of writers who you know, put down the only draft, the only copy of their typewritten or handwritten manuscript and left it in the back of a cab or you know, the housemaid came in and used it to light the fire or something. I don't know any modern writer who hasn't lost at least 100,000 words to a, misna- a corrupt file or, mm. or a bad email or something going wrong. We have collectively lost so much work. At the same time, it's probably easier to put it back together again. But um, there was one time I lost an almost complete role-playing game because uh, the zip file went corrupt. I'd done it. I was, I write a lot in liminal spaces, um, on particular trains, in particular trains. And um, this particular one, I was commuting halfway across London um, and then out of London to, to Hemel Hempstead. And I was using that time to, to write my own stuff on my work laptop, which I shouldn't have been doing. The job came to an end. It was dot-com job as these dot-com jobs did i needed to give the laptop back so i um, saved all my personal work into a zip file emailed it to myself took the laptop into the office handed it over went home to discover the zip file was corrupt and when a zip file is corrupt there is nothing you can do it's gone and that was 40 45,000 words of work that i was really pleased with and I was in a funk about that for about six months and did eventually reconstruct the game rather shorter. And it's nowhere near, in my head, it's nowhere near as good. But yeah, it's, I'm, I'm digressing. So I, t- I tend to be a, a kind of work on, the, work on the draft as you go, revise as I go, rather than doing a formal second draft. But that thing of continually taking on the new material of what I'm writing now going back and revising what I have written in the light of that new material, constant revision, which slows me down, I think, probably. I am I'm nowhere near as fast as I used to be when I was doing Sonic the Hedgehog books and Warhammer novels and all the rest of it in the 90s and early 2000s. When I did have, you know, like I said, I wrote a lot when I was commuting. I had several jobs, oh God, probably the worst. I was editing a magazine. I was presenting a weekly TV show and I was running a role-playing game publishing company in laughably my spare time. Mm. I, it's, it's a wonder I didn't completely burn out in a pile of ash at that point. 
I can't do that anymore. I'm I'm older. I'm grayer. I'm wiser. I have children. But I look back on that time, and it, you know, it's just a hive of creativity working on so many projects simultaneously. And that's the other thing. I, I constantly have ideas. I, I have I have two ways of working. You didn't ask the question. I'm going to anyway. I have this big laptop which I'm on at the moment. Which, if you could see my browser tabs, it's just, it's terrifying number of open browser tabs, many of which are Google documents for in work projects. And then what I have, what I uh, I have, what I call the Ursatz laptop, which is a very cheap tablet. It's a, like a hundred pound tablet and a twenty pound Bluetooth keyboard and a stylus pen that I was a giveaway from a hotel in Paris. And that is actually what I do most of my writing on because I can focus on that because it multitasks very badly. So swapping between documents is hard. So when I've got a document open, I focus on the document instead of, oh, there's this and there's that. And I wonder what's happening on Twitter. And and again, working in a coffee shop or a, 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 a liminal space like that. Lack of distractions. I distract myself so easily, often with other projects, often with, you know, to get away from the main thing I, I should have been doing. Very, very little of what I've written is stuff that is original to me. I've done an awful lot of stuff in other people's worlds and with other people's rule systems and in other people's ballparks, which is great. And I really enjoy it. And I, I would never say don't do that. Certainly it taught me that writing the Sonic the Hedgehog books incredibly quickly taught me so much about putting works, long works of fiction together. Fantastically useful kind of um, apprenticeship there. But these days I need the focus, particularly doing a long nonfiction book like uh, like Everybody Wins. That's um, 65, I think it's pushing 70,000 words of text, highly structured. And I absolutely needed to focus on that. That was interesting. I'm really surprised that you say it's 70,000 words or 65 to 70,000, because in the best way, it doesn't feel especially because it's so full of like rich full color pictures and stuff i would have never have guessed because it just it reads really smoothly i sort of kind of flew through it really but um there's lots of sidebars and little things like that they really they take up a lot lot of text a lot of space i'm really glad you enjoyed it yeah, I've, I absolutely loved it. And I'll put a link in the show notes of today's episode. If anyone listening, it's tickled their fancy and they'd uh, like to uh, get a copy for themselves. Um, if people would like to uh, find you or find out more about your work, where's the best place for them to go? Oh, God. Um, I have a vanity website, jameswallace.com, which is badly in need of updating. I've not really touched it in about 18 months. I will. I'll get on that. I promise. Mm. Um, but that has my bibliography and uh, a list of my games and a list of other stuff I've done and some of my journalism as well. I'm on Twitter. While Twitter's st- if Twitter's still there when this goes out, I'm on Twitter <laughs> at at James Wallace. Sure. I'll put those. I'll put those two uh, links to those two in the in the uh, in the show description um, underneath the podcast. James, thank you so much for chatting to me. I've really really enjoyed talking to you. Everyone listening, I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.